Welcome to Justice Studio Sessions. I am Marianne Moore, foundress of Justice Studio. During these sessions, we will be exploring the social justice themes that have emerged through Justice Studio's work, showcase grassroots activism, and deep dive into ethical and equitable research and consultancy methods. Stay tuned to learn more about the complexities of social justice and how you can turn your passion into action. Hello, dear listeners. In this episode, we are discussing children's rights in the country of Somaliland. Justice Studio worked in Somaliland during 2014 and 2015 to develop their first Children's Rights Act. Our client was the Ministry of Labour and Social Affairs, known as MULSA, who led a task force which included UNICEF and Save the Children. Our colleague for this work was the very impressive Gilead Ahmed Jama, who joins us today. Gilead is a human rights lawyer and activist. He was chair of the Human Rights Centre Somaliland from 2013 to 2019, and he's also just completed a PhD on children's rights in unrecognised states at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. We were incredibly lucky to work with him and also to have him here today, as you will see. I must say, during this discussion, we cover some very difficult topics, including female genital mutilation, otherwise known as FGM. So do please look after yourself and pause or take breaks or do whatever you need to ensure that you are okay if you find this subject particularly difficult. And with that, let's get on and speak to Gilead. Hello, Gilead. Hi, how are you? It's very nice meeting you again. It's good to see you. We did see each other relatively recently in London, but now you're in Somaliland and it's lovely to speak to you from there. It'd be great if you could just say a little bit more about your background and who you are. Yes, I'm a human lawyer based here in, in Somaliland. And in the last few years, I've been engaging with, with the PhD program up to end soon. Can you tell us a bit about the PhD that you've been working on? It is. It is about children's rights in Somaliland from the perspective of the fact that Somaliland is not a recognized state. Yeah, the fact that Somaliland is not a recognized state is really important, isn't it? It's going to be pretty important to understanding the work that we did in Somaliland in general. And I think what I might do is just start with a bit of an overall introduction to Somaliland and its history so that people who aren't familiar with Somaliland know where we're talking about. So, the area that is today Somaliland is extremely ancient and it's likely to have been inhabited by the earliest humans as it's really close to where one of the oldest known human ancestors that we have called Dinkanesh or Lucy was discovered in the 1970s. It has amazing rock paintings, such as the one in Las Giel, which are at least around 5,000 years old and most probably double that age. And we were really lucky to be able to see them when we were on our project. The area of Punt traded with ancient Egypt 
and to the Egyptians, the single most important trade item was the aromatic resins of frankincense and myrrh, which are still cultivated in Somaliland today. The first millennium BCE saw the rise of the Aksumite kingdom, which covered northern Somaliland and was listed as one of the world's fourth greatest empires, along with Persia, China and Rome, by the third century Persian writer Mani. It incorporated the Somali coast as far east as Berbera. Now, the Aksumite kingdom declined in the 7th century, and then Islam took a foothold in the Somali interior in the 10th and the 13th centuries, and there followed a series of sultanates, the last of which was the Wasangali Sultanate, which remained a fully autonomous sultanate until the end of the 19th century. Well, the British had their eye on Somaliland from 1839, when the British East Indian Company established a naval base at the Yemeni port of Aden. In the 1870s, they signed a treaty to recognise Egyptian rule of the Somali coast. And then, when Egypt's interest wavered, the British went in, signing treaties with clan leaders, and in 1884 and in 1898, the Somaliland Protectorate became directly answerable to the British Foreign Office. During colonial rule, the Somali territory was divided into five areas. Southern Somalia, under Italian rule. Djibouti, under French rule, the Ogaden region of Ethiopia, the northern province of Kenya, and the northern part of the territory, then under British rule, which was called the Somaliland Protectorate. This protectorate lasted under British rule until Somaliland secured independence on the 26th of June 1960. Gilead, can you tell us what happened between the Declaration of Independence from the British in the 1960s to it declaring independence in 1991? Yeah, Somaliland, the people of Somaliland back then were not happy with the division of the Somali people. So they united with Somalia to form the Somali Republic with the aspiration of uniting all Somalis. But the union didn't go well. In 1969, a military uh, dictator took over power and has committed heinous crimes in Somaliland. Therefore, in 1991, when rebel groups ousted the dictatorship regime of the military, the people of Somaliland decided to restore their independence and declared the independence of the Republic of Somaliland. And the idea is that the, the former British protectorate of Somaliland is now independent again. Yeah, it's a real shame, isn't it? Because obviously Somaliland united with South Somalia and then there was the coup in 1969 and then there was the war with Ethiopia in 1977 and it was in 1988, this civil war which ended for Somaliland when it declared its own independence on the 18th of May 1991. And it hasn't been easy for Somaliland since then, has it? Because although it declared its independence, it wasn't recognised by anyone else, not even its old colonial master, the British. Unfortunately, the international system is not well equipped in dealing with situations like that of Somaliland. Therefore, when Somaliland made the declaration of independence, it faced it with difficulties and complexities. Therefore, it has not been internationally recognized as an independent state, but in practice, it looks like a state. It has all the attributes of statehood. When you come to Somaliland, as you did, you will meet with the Somaliland flag and Somaliland immigration officers. And, and then it has all the branches of government, the legislature, the executive. 
and the judiciary, it is all military. So it, it, it acts like a state, but it is not being recognized as such by the international community so far. Yeah, exactly. As you say, it has all the trappings of a state. We were obviously working with the Ministry of Labour and Social Affairs, but we were also working with the Ministry of Justice. And when we went there, I think we were really surprised because we didn't know about Somaliland before. We knew about Somalia and the Google map says that, of course, Somaliland is part of Somalia. But no, in actual fact, Somaliland is a proper independent state. The only difference is that it hasn't been officially recognised by the international community. And you literally have everything there that you would need. People are really friendly. We didn't feel frightened at all. There was no kind of fear of being attacked or anything. It felt a lot safer than we had come to know Somalia would be. Well, I think from the, in, 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 from the outside world, it is less known. So less known. And, and I think the fact that the reason for that is that international media is well obsessed with Somalia. Uh, and cannot and cannot differentiate Somaliland from Somalia. So whenever somebody hears the name Somali, whether it's Somaliland or Somalia, what comes to person's mind is terrorism or piracy and other chaos, unfortunately, going on now in Somaliland. But those who are able to visit Somaliland or engage with Somaliland on various issues, mostly international organizations, aid organizations, know about Somaliland and that it is... Um, very peaceful place, but also a democratic place, you know, in a region that is known for various dictators and, 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 and chaos. It has relatively, relatively proven to be a democratic and peaceful place. Yeah, exactly. Somaliland is so much more peaceful than Somalia. And I remember when we told people we were going there as well, there was just this complete lack of understanding that there was this whole other country which was called Somaliland and that it wasn't Somalia and that it wasn't going to be the same kind of experience that people would have assumed from what they know of Somalia. And it feels really especially unfair that people in Britain didn't know that when Britain had such an important role in defining the borders of Somaliland. It doesn't seem right that Britain had done this and then is one of the main countries not to recognise Somaliland when it did declare itself independent. It's just another one of those hypocrisies that have emerged out of the British Empire and I'm really ashamed of that kind of behaviour from the country that I come from. And what's interesting also is that Somalia was one of the last countries, along with the United States of America, to, to not ratify the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. However, Somaliland, almost as soon as it declared itself independent, did ratify the convention, and yet it still is not recognised. So Somaliland definitely has more of an interest in children's rights than its neighbour Somalia. But it would be great to understand more about how you came to be working in children's rights and human rights in general. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work in this area? Yeah, yeah I was born and raised in a region that is well known of fracases. So properly the, uh, the, 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 the early Egyptians visited uh, the area. Uh, but uh, I studied law in Hagais at the capital of uh, Somaliland. 
and I was when I was then in Mumbai, I was simply interested. But when I graduated the law school and started the internship with the legal aid clinic, I have learned how deep the difference between law in theory and law in practice are, and how vulnerable communities were not protected by law, but where their rights were violated by the law and law the law institutions, and that was very shocking. Um, and that's when I started thinking about how to do about what to do about that. Uh, and with my colleagues, we tried several uh, issues and several things. But at the end, we decided to form the Human Rights Center, which is a human rights advocacy group that advocates for human rights in 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 in, in, in Somalia. I have been the head of that organization for I think six years. Stepped down, and then um, in 2020, I started researching topic that's very close to my area of interest, children's rights in unrecognized state of Somalia. So combining on the issue of human rights, children's rights, but also with the predicament the people of Somalia are facing due to the lack of recognition and how lack of recognition affects the protection of the rights of children in Somalia and of course the rights of adults as well. Yeah, can you say a bit more about that, about how the fact that Somaliland is unrecognized affects the rights of children. Uh, the fact that Somaliland is not recognized means Somaliland is almost closed uh, from the outside world. And that has to do with trade and investment and banking, but also involves international human rights accountability. As you know, international human law is primarily based on treaties, which are state-centric. So treaty and charter-based institutions focus on member states of the treaty. And that's where the status of status or human rights situation is reviewed and are allowed when the treaty in question accepted so. But Somalia is not recognized, which means it's not party to any human activity. And as a result, international human rights policies do not consider Somalia when they are dealing with human rights situation. So the international human law almost almost deals with Somaliland as a non-existent, uh, although it exists. And that uh, puts people living in Somaliland, children living in Somaliland at risk of their rights not being protected or often violated. Uh, and why that is important? It is important because when the domestic law does not sufficiently protect human rights, International human law provides forum where the state can be held accountable. But when the state is not recognized, that international accountability framework does not focus on that domestic state. So if your government is violating your rights, there's no outside entity that you can talk to. Uh, and because your government has not ratified international human rights treaty, it means there is no standard to hold the government into account and say, okay, you have uh, signed this treaty, you have to reform your institution and stuff like that. That's something that cannot be easily said to an organizing state. Yeah, I guess it's probably questionable the extent to which this even helps for other countries as well, because obviously international human rights can be tricky, but certainly the fact that there's absolutely no other power to be able to recall to and also to kind of hold the government account that can be really really difficult and so it just puts Somaliland in a much more vulnerable position and therefore the children within Somaliland are in an even more vulnerable position 
But of course, looking at the Children's Rights Act that we were there to help create, there was a real incentive and desire by the Ministry of Labour and Social Affairs and UNICEF and Save the Children who were working with them to try and make sure that children in Somaliland could be as protected as possible and to think about how can we legislate for children's rights in a way that was really practical and that made sense so that it didn't just take into account the international standards but it also took into account customary law and Islamic law and all of the different ways that children were already being looked after. Can you give us a bit of context about where Somaliland was on kind of the eve of us arriving around 2015? What was the situation and why were children's rights important to the government at that time? Yeah, back then when we were doing the consultations for for the Child Rights Act, Somaliland didn't have a legislation on the subject. The only relevant legislation was the juvenile justice law which only dealt with children who are accused of being in conflict with the law. And the constitution of Somaliland is silent about the rights of children. It doesn't say anything about that. It encompasses a bit of rights that's largely adults' rights. Okay. So it was very important in Somaliland to have Child Rights Act, important for protecting children, but also very important, as we said, because Somaliland is not part of the international human rights framework. So improving domestic law means a lot for the people living in Somaliland. So it, 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 it was a very important exercise that was very important for Somaliland government to have laws that protect the rights of children in this country. Yeah, as you say, it was the very first piece of legislation to protect the rights of children in Somaliland. And so that made it really, really important and really exciting for us to be involved with. I'll um, have a little explanation about kind of the things that we were looking at while we were there. So we had to be aware that Somaliland has a plural legal system. So it consists of common law, civil law, customary law and Sharia law. And, and therefore the act had to be compatible with all of these different types of laws, but also the international child rights standards. So it was not a straightforward task given that some of these different types of legislation contradict each other and there are particular areas where that is really, really, really tricky. But what we did was we undertook an extensive document review and a legal review of all the existing laws and the international standards and then we worked out where there were alignments and where there were gaps. And then from the information that we gathered, we then worked out a whole load of different questions that we wanted to ask the people of Somaliland so that we could understand their perspective and see if we could work out something that was really practical for the country. So together with yourself and a team of people from the various ministries, we carried out consultations all across Somaliland with all sorts of different people. So we went to Hargeisa, Aldal, Sahil, Togadir, Sul and Sanang. And I always say that wrong. Did I say that wrong again? No, it's a salt, so you haven't said wrong then. Salt, yeah, I always say it wrong because it's double O, so I just kind of say soul all the time. Apologies, it's soul. Okay, so in total we carried out about 66 focus groups with all sorts of different categories of stakeholder authority figures, including government officials, religious leaders, NGO workers and teachers, 
community members with male and female parents, children from schools, and children in vulnerable situations such as in refugee camps, those are affected by HIV AIDS, street children, and children in detention, and other children out of school. And so throughout the consultations, especially with children, we obviously had to make sure that the research we were doing was really ethical and had import and good safeguarding standards because some of the children we were dealing with had really, really, really difficult circumstances. But those consultations with the children who were in the most vulnerable circumstances were so eye-opening and so helpful for our act. And it was so important to talk to them because, of course, it is exactly those children who the act most needed to help. What are your recollections, Gilead, about our consultations and what were your impressions? Yeah, the, the, as, as you said, the plurality of the legal system in Somaliland is very strong. So people in power, people with authority, were pushing the version of what they thought were children's rights. But the ordinary people we were talking to, children, mothers, Particularly, it was very interesting that we talked to that we talked to people in rural areas and nomadic communities who are rarely involved in these consultations. So, what they were telling us in terms of the problems they were facing and what they wanted the law to include, and what the people with authority were telling us were quite different. Particularly, religious leaders, uh, clan leaders, and sometimes the government authority. Um, it was a, so therefore fantastic um, exercise, which I think the core of it is that everybody involved in consultation should make it as broad as possible and should involve all the categories of, of, of people, particularly people who are not always involved in these consultations. Children, children uh, who are homeless. Uh, you remember when we met, they were very forthcoming and telling us things that we were never being told by others. Uh, so it was very interesting, particularly talking to children and talking to children who are aware in vulnerable uh, positions. Yeah, they were so eloquent and they had such important things to say. One of the things that they mentioned, the, the boys that we spoke to who had been living on the street, was the difference they felt between children who were sent to school and those on the street. And they really felt that they were treated unequally by the police and by all the authorities and really given much less rights. It was so clear that they they knew that they were treated unfairly and that they didn't want this to happen. And there were also other issues that we touched on with the Act because we were looking at the definition of parental responsibility. Children wanted the parents to treat them well. Girls felt that parents needed to treat them equally without preferring the boys over the girls and that they should teach them what's right or wrong, that they should consider their opinions and then also have patience if they make a mistake. We looked at the right to be heard and children's perspectives on that and also child-friendly spaces. I remember the girls saying that they don't have places to play and that the government should be providing these. Both boys and girls noted the danger of playing near roads and Boys wanted to say that they needed safe places to play where there weren't cars or landmines, which is really horrible. There were all sorts of things which came up that the children really had an opinion on. The children who were in schools said that they shouldn't be subject to corporal punishment if they've done something wrong. They said they'd rather be told off than beaten. 
They said that they had been beaten at school, uh, although not all teachers beat their students, and they felt that instead they should be respected and not beaten up and that their opinion should be heard. We looked at child marriage early and child marriage and just some of the horrible things that were happening with the inequality for girls. So girls from urban areas were particularly concerned about ensuring that marriage should happen after their studies had been completed. And boys mentioned large age ranges for marriage, with 20 being the most common age. They both said that their choice in their marriage should be important, but girls said that their opinions weren't being listened to at all. And then, of course, there was the issue of female genital mutilation, which was a massively controversial issue. And Justice Studio itself, the people who we had in our organisation, myself and my other colleague, were really, really concerned to acknowledge the position that we ourselves were in as white women from Western country and the problems that there is in terms of kind of the perception that it is people from other countries who are imposing a kind of colonial view on this idea of a a female genital mutilation. So we were really concerned about that and we also wanted to make sure that we got got it right. And I know that just everybody had a different view on it from the male authority figures to some of the women in women's rights organisations. Some other women were saying that it was okay. But the children were unanimous and the children didn't want it. Like the majority of girls we spoke to appeared to have knowledge of FGM. They understood its effects and almost all of them just said it should be stopped altogether. What did what was kind of your impressions of the whole thing when when we were there? Yeah, it it was also a lesson for me. Although I I have been here forever, but the the the, the versions of children we met, particular girls, was not something I was aware of. So it, it was very clear that the issue of FGM and other subjects when uh, adult version of differences and children didn't want that and, uh, and they were very clear about that not only that they didn't want it but also how painful it was and horrifying that exercise was to them but the voices were not that they listened it was always often the people with authority who decide not to include in law even when the people the majority don't want that which is very unfortunate yeah, exactly. Of course, it was much more complicated, unfortunately, than getting the perspectives of children in the local community and then creating the legislation. Of course, we had to consult many other people as well, including religious leaders and lawyers. And we were back and forth to Somaliland quite a lot over the period of a year and a half to ensure that we got as many different views as possible. And we wrote quite a few different drafts of the act. I think it was the fifth draft of the act that we finally handed in. And during that time, there were all sorts of discussions around what should or shouldn't be done around the the really kind of contentious issues such as FGM. And yeah, it was quite a long process. So I think it was that we handed in the fifth draft of the act around June 2015. But then it took until October 2022 for it to finally be made into law and then it was legislated as the child rights protection act so what 
happened during the time from when we left Somaliland and had it in our drafts to the time when it was actually enacted in October 2022. Why did it take so long? The I think when when the van when we presented the people with authority the van a final draft, they have changed it drastically, uh, and the evident changes affect on issues of children's rights. There are many issues of children's rights, and when you look at the new draft and compare it with the first one, what you will see is the influence of her the clan law. Uh, and Sharia law in particular, and I should not say Sharia law, but say uh, a version of Sharia law dominated how the law was finally. Um, Could you explain a bit about the different types of Sharia law? Because I know that there are four main different types. It would be great if you could explain to people who don't know what the differences are between them. Yeah, when people say Sharia law, they often think that it's only one, there's only one Sharia law, but... Um, I think uh, human beings never agree on one thing. So Islam as a religion um, has the legal aspect of it, which people call Sharia. And there are different schools of thought, but also different uh, political movements, which have their own idea and imagination of how how society should be run. And that philosophical difference affects the legal aspect of Sharia. So the more conservative, I guess, version of um, uh, Islamists have a version that is not in, that may not be in compliance with international women's law and that sometimes dominates discourses. And that's what happens in Somaliland. Ultra-conservative Saudi Arabia Link group has power in Somaliland and they dominate how people understand here in Somaliland Sharia, which is very different of traditionally what Somalilanders used to be in Somalis in general, which used to be Sufi, Islam, and, and, and Shafi'i school. Uh, but the new group are likely Hanbali school and not Sufi. The Hanbali school, did you say at the end? Yes, Hanbali school. Is that the most conservative one? That is the more conservative one, which is very new to Somaliland and largely to Africa and North Africa. Yeah, it's four types. Is that right, ranging in different levels of conservatism? I think that's what you taught me when I was there. In the Sunni Islam, in the Sunni Islam, there are four. In, in the Shiite, it's different. And so one is Shafi'i, Hanbali, Hanafi, and Maliki. So. Somali is having always a Shafi school. But it's not only about the school, but it's also the philosophical background of that particular group. So you could be Shafi'i, but ultra-conservative. So, and the importance is where you put on the emphasis in terms of the source of the law, of Sharia law. So there are those who put emphasis on the Quran, the Holy Book of Islam, Hadith, which is the sayings of the Prophet but also allows human interpretation in terms of custom, in terms of analogy and stuff like that. And those who do that enlarge the sources of the sources of law are less conservatives. If you compare those who put emphasis only on the Quran and the Hadith and how they understand these two. 
Thank you so much for explaining. It's so interesting, the different levels of complexity of Sharia law. And in terms of what we kind of ended up with, would you define that as a certain kind of school of thought, which it then gets changed to when we depart and it kind of goes through the processes that it's gone through? Did it start off one thing and end up another thing? Or how would you kind of explain the change that has gone about with the law? Yes, what we did produce was as a result of consultations with the ordinary people. So that's what they wanted to see. But when that was tabled with the people in power, uh, the voices of conservative elements uh, was again heard and given more say than the people we consulted with, women, children, uh, local traditional leaders, local religious leaders who are not that conservative, but, you know, understand Islam from their point of view. So it went huge, some change, influenced by a few powerful people. So ours was based on a broad-based consultations with everybody. But later on, as I see it, it was input from powerful individuals who might not be the majority if you talk to the people uh, of Somalia. Yeah, so what happened after we left? We pretty much kind of didn't really see much about what was going on once we had left and gone back to Britain, but I know that you were around and it would be great to understand more about the process of what was happening. Were there more debates? Were there more drafts? Like, what was the situation? What happened is subsequently was not much on the public domain. So it was mostly changes made within rooms presented by few people. So it didn't go the kind of white consultations you have done. Mm, I see. Yeah. So we just really don't know what happened behind these closed doors. It's frustrating because, of course, what has come out in October 2022 is pretty different from what we handed in back in the day. And it would be really, really good if you could explain a bit about kind of what the Child Rights Protection Act looks like and how it may have changed from what we had. All the changes were made, but it's not bad law. Uh, to begin with, because having a child rights law is important per se, because when in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution you don't have children's rights, and the notion of stipulating children's rights in the law changes the perception of people of how they see children. Uh, usually in our society, children are seen as the property of the parents, not as agencies of their own rights. So this law put his children's rights, Bill of Rights for children in law, and that's very important. One of the changes that has been made include that the Bill of Rights themselves has been expansive in our first draft, but this one has been a bit limited. Uh, and secondly, in almost every Bill of Rights provision, uh, there is a line that saying it should not contradict with Sharia law, Islamic law, which creates uh, lacuna and ambiguity because the law should be clear of what you mean. If you revert to some other law that's not being seen, you created a problem. Uh, but also it doesn't contain FGM, doesn't say anything about FGM. It doesn't prohibit child marriage. Marriage. It doesn't clearly define the age of child. 
So these are one of the one of some of the problems within the law, some of the areas with with that will pose challenge in the future. Yeah, and of course all of these things were issues that we cared so much about and we did loads of work to ensure that we could have protections for them around FGM, around child marriage, around the definition of a child which we wanted to be in line with international standards at 18. There were so much kind of work went into trying to make sure that children's rights were as protected as possible. And I think it's it's kind of difficult because I feel a bit frustrated and disheartened about how extensive the changes have been since we worked on it because we obviously put so much work into it. But then, as you say, and as you kind of rightly emphasise, the very fact that this law exists at all is a real step forward because it says that the country does care about children, that children are important enough to be legislated for in this way. And it really is a very kind of lasting recognition of that. So I want to acknowledge that these things are really important, but I don't know, how does it feel for you? Yeah, I do see it in that way because it is a, it is a commitment, it's a legal commitment. So it shows that the leaders of Somalia, like political leaders and, and others, uh, are caring about children having rights. So saying that in law and enacted in it and approving it, it's a step forward. It might not be what we wanted. It might not include all the things that should protect children. But at the end of the day, it is a legal instrument that can be used to protect children. But also it is a legal instrument that can be used to raise awareness so that the, the public of Somaliland understand that children have rights, that they are not their property, but they are human beings with rights and their rights should be protected all the time, not only by the state, but also others with responsibility for family members, institutions like schools and etc. Yeah, you're so right. It's not just the fact that the government are saying that there's an important issue. It also really helps to galvanise the country around the rights of children and make sure that people are thinking about the rights of children in a much more constructive way and, and a way that, that kind of lends itself to a national discussion about it. So, yes, brilliant. You are making me feel more enthusiastic and happy about it. But I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, what do we say to those children that spoke to us? And we know that these children, many of the girls talking about the kind of discrimination that they faced in terms of having less rights than boys, having to stay home from school and do the housework and much less opportunities and with the boys also saying that they don't have as much rights if they're in vulnerable situations as schoolboys. what do we say what what do we know about the situation of discrimination for children in Somaliland has the act properly looked at this issue the law says that discrimination is prohibited and it also says all the time the best interests of the child should be given the primary consideration. So these are good points, but it doesn't provide the mechanism to protect children from discrimination. So because in order to move away from these discriminatory practices, you need to have strong legal norms that uh, address these issues in a systematic manner. So that's what it is missing. It says discrimination is prohibited. It's very nice. But how do you go about it? the existing discrimination that are very structural, very universal within our 
uh, society. That's what it, what it does in address poverty. Mm-hmm. That's such an important point. Thank you for making it. Yeah, it's it's frustrating because I do remember that we went into that, but clearly that hasn't come across. And I do think it's a failing of so much legislation in general, particularly to do with children's rights, where the structural issues and the actual practical application of the Act and the rights enshrined in the Act isn't really thought out so that in in actual practice, what does this mean for children? How do their lives actually change on the ground? And it's frustrating to see that that is going to be the case. One of the key issues that we looked at was early in child marriage and the appropriate age for people to get married at. And the children had quite clear views and the age that came out was, was around the age of 20, although rural girls and those from Sinang had an earlier age and girls from urban regions tended to have a kind of higher range. But there was a lot of concern about girls being able to have their studies being completed before they get married and both boys and girls wanting their choice to be considered as well. And I know that we heard that for many boys and girls, currently what they were doing is if they didn't have their choice listened to, then they were running away with each other. So what happened as a result of child marriage? What have we got in the law now? I think that one of the main failures of this act, one of the main failures of this act is it is failure on addressing the issue of child marriage. Basically, not prohibiting it. And as long as you don't prohibit it, it's been permitted because that's what the practice is. And there are also, there's also another legislation pending that if approved, it will clearly permit child marriage. So that's very unfortunate. And as you said, children had a strong opinion about that. And their opinion was very different from what the adults wanted. So it seems that the adult opinions have been preferred over children's opinion on, on child marriage. And it has been given religious, cultural meaning. So there are some different interpretations within the within Sharia, particularly the different schools of thought of how to do about that. And the Muslim countries all over the world have a different ways of addressing it. So there was a good way that was not contradictory with Islam to prohibit child marriage, but unfortunately that was opted out. Yeah, exactly, because it's really frustrating because, of course, Islam is compatible with children's rights. I remember there was this really useful resource that we had from Al-Azhar University, which had been written in cooperation with UNICEF, and it set out all of the references from the Quran and the other holy texts and showed how they referenced and explained children's rights in all of these different areas. And so it's so frustrating that, of course, this has been kind of ignored And also, of course, that adults keep putting their rights above the rights of children. And this happens throughout the world. But it's a shame that nobody is listening to what children really want. And so then, of course, there was the topic of female genital mutilation. And we know that that was a difficult topic to try and get right and to square the different opinions and ideas of all of the different people who were involved in the act, but what has ended up happening with this in the final version? Yeah, in the final, in the final version, there's no mention of that whatsoever. 
Yeah, and that's very unfortunate. I think this legislation gave Somaliland government opportunity to ban FGM. And Somaliland missed that, which is very unfortunate. As you said, it's very prevalent. Uh, but also, I would like to say is that the classification of FGM to Sunnah type and Faronic type of state public is, is international advocacy that went wrong. You know, in the early 1990s, when international UN agencies came into Somalia, they took a strategy to classify FGM into Sunnah type and Faronic type. And they asked the people to stop the Faronic type. And by giving the name Sunnah, which is a religious meaning that it is permitted, changed the people's perception of FGM because it has told them that there is a type of FGM that is religious and allowed because in, in, within the theory of Islam, if something is Sunnah, if you do it, you will get reward from God, from Allah. So you give the people the meaning uh, and motive to continue FGM. So now when some organization is trying to change that and say, no, all FGM is, is wrong, and there's no strong evidence in Islam that permits FGM whatsoever, and there are so many Muslim countries that have panned it. They said, no, this is Sunnah, this is religious, we don't, we're not going to change it. So it, it, it gave FGM a whole another level of complication. So it is very important that UN agencies and international organizations working on this subject, it's not only FGM but others, to be careful of what they say. Yeah, you know, they shouldn't use a short-term tactic saying, okay, if you convince people to stop type 3, you may be able to convince them in the future to stop type type, type, type 1 later on. That doesn't work like that. If you give a religious meaning, it becomes very difficult for people to change. Oh my goodness, I didn't realise that it had been Western NGO workers who had caused such problems in terms of making the Sunnah type more prevalent or more linked to Islam. That's really, really shocking and, and depressing to hear. Uh, yeah, I said it, it, it was something went wrong. It was, it, it was really a bad advocacy strategy. Yeah, so badly wrong. The whole subject of FGM is really horrendous and I am kind of partly want to explain the three different types so that people know what we're talking about and partly don't want to mention them because they're so horrendous and, and hideous but essentially just in a nutshell there's a kind of a range of extremes with FGM with with what has been nicknamed Sunnah type 1 as being the most light version of FGM which involves cutting of the genitals right up to type 3 the pharaonic type which is the most extreme version of cutting away large portions of the clitoris and the labia and sewing up the vaginal opening so that there's only a tiny hole and then that means that when people have to have intercourse then these stitches need to be ripped open and so it's completely and utterly horrendous and psychologically damaging and horrible What would you say were some of the more positive elements of the act in terms of what has actually been passed? I, like many other countries, in, in, particularly in, 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 in underdeveloped countries, 
there's a difference between law in, in practice and law in theory. So sometimes you pass a very nice law, but that doesn't mean things will change in practice. There's a problem with implementation of laws. There's a problem with rule of law, uh, but also there's a problem of absence of limited presence of institutional infrastructure to implement laws. These laws who have a far-reaching effect on societal behavior need institutional framework, but also they need budget from the government's resources to ensure that it gets implemented and people are aware of it. So the law has been passed, but as far as I know, uh, it is not yet fully implemented. So whatever good in the law need to be need to be realized, and that needs uh, implementation strategy to be in place so that the law gets implemented. Law publication it should be widely published so people are aware of in a language they understand. Uh, but also lawyers, judges, prosecutors, police officers, uh, and other government officials should be should be made aware of the law and what it introduces. So the, we have the law now; it's a good thing, uh, but it's not yet implemented. Yeah, of course, implementation is so important and so often overlooked, especially when we think about you know police knowing, prosecutors knowing people on the ground knowing that the law has changed and that their behavior needs to be different that tends to be so often the point at which legislation falls down i really hope that over the next few years the child rights protection acts can be really really well integrated into the legislature and into the behavior of the prosecutors and the police and everybody that needs to work on it what are the biggest issues for children in Somaliland today? There are a lot of main issues in, in with children in Somaliland. I think they have problems with right to education, right to health. We've talked about issues of abuse, sexual abuse, uh, rape and others, issue of uh, marriage, which is itself, I think, form of abuse, FGM. So the list goes. Wherever you touch, in terms of the rights of children, there is a problem. And what are you and other bodies such as the Human Rights Centre doing at the moment? What's your kind of main things that you're working on? In the last four or five years, I haven't been involved actively with the Human Rights Centre since I stepped down. Now I'm in the office of the Human Rights Centre because thanks to them, they gave me an uh, office to work for my PhD uh, programme. Uh, I'm doing a master's university. But the Human Rights Centre focuses on human rights advocacy in general. So it doesn't focus on, on children's rights. My PhD program, however, focuses on rights of children in Somalia and takes case studies. So I'm doing a legal doctrinal uh, methodology, which means I'm studying the law, international law and domestic law as well. Uh, all the laws that has impact on rights of children. But I took two case studies, which is the right to nationality and the rights of children, right to protect children from sexual abuse. Um, and, and the idea is that when it when it gets uh, finalized, it will provide the conceptual framework, legal understanding we need to understand the existing legal mechanisms domestically and internationally related to children in Somalia, and that may help uh, practitioners who want to work more on the rights of children. Amazing. So it's focusing specifically on children who've experienced sexual abuse, did you say? W one of the two case studies, one is sexual abuse and the other is right to nationality. And so when I was lucky enough to see you recently give your talk at the University of SOAS in London, 
You were talking about children from many other unrecognised states as well as Somaliland, but is your PhD focusing solely on children in Somaliland? Yes, my focus is on Somaliland and children's rights in Somaliland, but I'm part of a research group uh, that also focuses on other unrecognised states. So um, we're doing a different researches on different areas, different territories that are not recognised. And as we come to the end of this amazing discussion, are you able to just remind us again why it is extra important to think about children who live in unrecognized states and how we can ensure that their rights are upheld? Yes, as I said at the beginning, the lack of recognition means international human rights law does not automatically apply, might not automatically apply to children living in Africa. State. So the issue of protection of international human law on children living in the state becomes a very important one. Because for all other stages, recognized stages, international human law has mechanism to deal with these stages. And when the rights of people, children living there are violated, there are always mechanisms to review the status of that country. But also some treaty policies be met individual complaints. But when you live in Somaliland, for instance, and say the rights of of a child in Somaliland is being violated by the government of Somaliland, and the child, she exhausted the domestic legal framework, domestic judiciary, um, she cannot go to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights because that commission doesn't recognize Somaliland, will not allow complaint from Somaliland to be submitted to it. So that's what makes it a very unique argument. states are very unique in terms of the weakness of international system to address them. Thank you so much for that. It's such an important topic and one that I hadn't really fully understood as an issue, but I think it's really, really good for people to understand how complex this can be for children, especially when they have rights that aren't being acknowledged and they're also in a state that's not acknowledged. And so as we draw to a close, thank you so much. What is next for you? Do you have a plan? Yes, my, my, my idea, my plan is to, um, to work with the Human Rights Center and other organizations so that we come up ways to integrate children's rights in their focusing strategies and focusing plans so that they take actions and improve their work on children's rights. Amazing, that sounds brilliant. And I remember when we spoke recently at the talk that you gave, we were both frustrated about how few people care about children's rights and how often children's rights are overlooked. I'm so impressed by all of the work that you do and your commitment to children. And I can't wait to read your PhD when it is ready. And I'm just so, so grateful for you being here today and talking about the Smileyland Child Rights Protection Act. Thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you. And I'm sure that all of the listeners will have got so much out of the information that you've given and will definitely want to follow you and your work and find out as much as they can about you. So where can they follow you? Where can they find you? Yeah, I am uh, at Twitter, at Bullet Chair, and Human Rights Center is also at Twitter. HRC is Somalia, so they can uh, reach it out, HRC and me there. And thank you very much for, 
for, for, for hosting me in this podcast. Congratulations for doing this. Uh, I think it's very amazing work. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope I see you and speak to you very, very soon. Thank you very much. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Justice Studio Sessions. We have so enjoyed deep diving into social justice with you. Justice Studio provides compassionate consultancy rooted in social justice. If you would like to work with us, please visit our website at www.justicestudio.org or email us at info at This podcast relies on your support. If you love our content and would like to see this podcast reach more people, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave us a lovely review. We would be delighted for you to share your thoughts, musings, or favourite parts of the podcast with us on social media. You can tag and or follow Marianne at creatrix.london and Justice Studio at Justice Studio on all the major social sites. This podcast was hosted by Marianne Moore and produced by Justice Studio Limited. The music was by Luke Fraser at The Tonic and the artwork was by Marianne. Thank you so much for listening.